Star Walker Studios presents Game Master's Journey, your multidimensional RPG podcast. Hello, fellow gamer. Welcome to episode 128 of Game Master's Journey, your multidimensional RPG podcast. I'm Lex Starwalker, and on this show, we discuss the craft and art of game mastering. Not only do I pass along any wisdom I've gained over 25 plus years of running RPGs, I also share wisdom from guest GMs and listener GMs like you. Today, I'll be answering listener questions about my homebrew world, Primordia. Now, before we get into the world building discussion today, I wanted to remind you that I'm soliciting feedback on a couple topics that I want to cover in future episodes. The first topic is gaming in between sessions. What are some strategies that you've used to keep player interest and keep the players engaged in between your gaming sessions, whether you're playing online or in person? Have you done things like using forums or emails or something like that where the players can interact with one another and or interact with you, the GM, and kind of keep things going between sessions? What do you do when players are absent? Do you have any creative strategies for handling player absences? And the other topic that I'm looking for feedback on is how do you handle when you've given out too much loot to your player characters. How do you deal with that as a GM? So you can go to the show notes for this episode, episode 128 at starwalkerstudios.com slash Game Master's Journey. And I will have links to the discussions about these topics on the Game Master's Journey community where you can weigh in. So last episode on episode 127, I talked a bit about my homebrew world of Primordia. I talked about some of what's going on in the wilderness outside the cities, and also what kinds of things adventurers in Primordia might find themselves doing. And pretty much all of that came from an email that I got from a listener that was asking questions about Primordia. And recently on the Game Master's Journey community, I had asked for any questions that listeners had about Primordia specifically or about world building. And I've gotten quite a few of those and uh, I may still get more, who knows. But today we're going to start going through those questions and I'm just going to on the fly answer them. Um, I haven't prepared for this, uh, so this will be just off the top of my head and I guess I'm, I'm kind of in the hot seat. So we'll see how I do. I want to thank everyone who submitted questions for today's topic, and I think there's a good chance that we won't get through them all today. So I will put a link to this thread on the Game Master Journey community as well in the show notes at starwalkerstudios.com. So if uh, you're listening to this and you have additional questions that, that aren't covered or haven't been covered in the thread yet, then feel free to go there and submit more questions because... I doubt I'll get through them all today, and if I don't get through them all today, then I'll do the rest at a later date, and then I can get to any new questions that are submitted after this episode. So let's get into it. 
And like I said, at the top of the show, I'm just going to read these and respond to them. Uh, this is unrehearsed. <laughs> so we'll, we'll just see how this goes. So my first question comes from Nathan Cook, who says, well, I think it's interesting to hear about anything about your world of Primordia. But if I had to pick, it would be more about what's under Primordia. A lot of the old school D&D games I used to play in my second edition days had Drow, Mind Flayers, and Fomorians, among other things, as the big bads in the campaigns I played in. So are there cultures living underground separate from the ones above in Primordia? I think another way to say this is, is there an Underdark in Primordia? And, you know, this isn't a part of the world I've given a lot of thought to, but I have given some thought to it. And, and I can say that, yes, there is an Underdark in Primordia. I've actually thought about some of the adventures that I've been working on for Primordia. I've thought about, oh, does, you know, does this cave or does this cavern somehow connect to the Underdark? Or not. So for me, it's kind of always been the assumption that yes, of course, there'll be an underdark. It, it wasn't even something that I don't think I, I thought very much about the possibility of there not being an underdark because I like dark elves, I like mind flayers, I like hook horrors and, and all those um, abolists and all those classic underdark monsters. And you flip through the monster manual for fifth edition, and there's quite a bit in there that can be found in the Underdark. So I'm definitely going to have an Underdark. I haven't given a lot of thought as far as fleshing that out, what the Underdark is going to be like. There will definitely be Abolus. I'm, I'm a huge fan of Abolus. There will definitely be Grey Dwarves. There will definitely be Dark Elves. Although one thing that, that I've already decided about the setting is that in Primordia, the Dark Elves are not limited to the Underdark, and I haven't figured out exactly why that is or, or why some of the Dark Elves are in the Underdark and some of them aren't, other than there is no Loth in, in Primordia, and so the usual kind of story of how the Dark Elves came to be in the Underdark isn't really going to work in Primordia because Loth isn't a thing, and the Seldorin isn't a thing, and Corlon isn't a thing in Primordia, so... I'd have to come up with another reason for the Dark Elves to be in the Underdark anyway. So I've decided that at least in the days that there were elves around, there were Dark Elf cities just like there are High Elf cities. So don't know if any of those are still around or, or what's going on with the Dark Elves. There are definitely some that are in the Underdark, but they're not all necessarily in the Underdark. All right, so before I ramble on too, more, too much more, let's get back to Nathan's questions here because I know he's got a lot of them. So he says, are there cultures living in the underground? Yes, there are. Uh, what kind? How do they defend themselves? Do they have a shield of their own or some other defense? Yeah, that's a really good question. So here Nathan's uh, referring, I think, to the force fields that protect the cities on the surface, kind of like mythals. Uh, that protect the cities on the surface from the rifts that are opening to other planes all the time. And I, I talked about this quite a bit in episode 127. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, how are these cities in the Underdark protected? So this isn't something I've really given any thought to before right now. Um, but right away, I have a couple ideas. The, the first idea that actually came to mind 
was recalling the, uh, I believe it's called the Phaserus in Forgotten Realms, but but this idea that in the Underdark, there's this magical radiation that doesn't exist on the surface. And this isn't a new idea. This has been around at least in second edition, because I know when I learned about Dark Elves in second edition, that Underdark radiation was a thing and was an explanation for why um, in second edition, at least, you know, most of their armor and weapons and stuff were actually magical and had magical bonuses. Um, just, you know, common everyday, like everybody's sword had a magic bonus. And the explanation for that was, you know, it's all suffused with this radiate, this magical energy, which gives it magical properties. But then you take it outside of the Underdark and especially if it gets uh, exposed to sunlight, then the the weapon quickly loses its magic and disintegrates or whatever. So that's kind of where all that came from. And now, you know, in fifth edition, I didn't run out of the abyss, but I saw some actual play of it and I flipped through the book. And in fifth edition, they added this idea that this radiation makes you go crazy, um, which at least was new to me. I, I know that wasn't a thing in second edition. Maybe it's something they did in fourth. I don't know. But honestly, I'm not a fan of that. I think that's kind of, I don't know. I guess if you want to make your D&D more campy, maybe that would work. But I just, I, I don't know. I just don't like it. First of all, I don't think it's a great idea. I don't think it's a very good idea to begin with. And second of all, it, it kind of flies in the face of the lore that's been established. You know, I'm speaking as someone who was introduced to the Underdark via the Dark Elf trilogy, Homeland, Exile, and Sojourn. And those were some of the earlier, you know, D&D books that I read. And, you know, you didn't have people going crazy from the Underdark radiation in there like you do in Out of the Abyss. And it just, to me, flies in the face of the character development of the Dark Elves and the, the, the Grey Dwarves, I think, are the ones that are in the Underdark and the Deep Gnomes. You know, none of them before were known for being mentally unstable. Well, the Grey Dwarves were, but that was because they had been thralls to the Mind Flayers, not because of Underdark radiation. So to me, this is just another example of what's wrong with Forgotten Realms and what's wrong with how Wizards of the Coast treats uh, the property of Forgotten Realms and other things in D&D where they will just on a whim, it seems like, change something like saying, oh, now the Underdark has this radiation that makes you go crazy, even though it was never that way before. And there are all these novels about th people in the Underdark and, and all these previous adventures where that was never mentioned. But now for no good apparent reason, they're going to change it just to do something new for 5th edition. And now we have to retcon all this crap from before, or we have to come up with some really contrived reason why now it makes people crazy and it didn't before. And to me, Forgotten Realms, and especially Wizards of the Coast treatment of Forgotten Realms, is just one contrived thing after another, and is one of the reasons why I really don't like that setting. So my first idea to answer Nathan's question here is, well, maybe this Underdark radiation actually prevents these rifts from opening, so you just don't have rifts opening in the Underdark anyway. So there's no need for mythos or magical force fields or anything to protect the cities because the rifts aren't happening there. Um, and there is some precedence for this in the second edition days with the radiation in the Underdark. Part of the deal with that 
was that it did mess with teleportation magic such that teleportation magic either wouldn't work or was more unreliable or more likely to send you somewhere other than where you wanted to go when you were in the Underdark, either trying to teleport into the Underdark or teleporting within the Underdark because this radiation would mess with it. So I don't think it would be much of a stretch at all to say that that radiation actually prevents these rifts from opening and it's not a problem in the Underdark. But then I kind of wonder, well, if if that became known, maybe people would start building more cities in the Underdark to get away from, from the rifts and Maybe that'll be a thing. That could, that could be an interesting development in the setting. So that was one idea. The other idea is that, you know, there are dark elves in the Underdark. So at the very least, um, these dark elves, the old dark elf cities could have these mythos around them. So that's a way I could go as well. So I could say that the rifts do open in the Underdark and the dark elf cities are, are protected, just like the ancient elven cities on the surface are. Or I could go the route of saying that the radiation in the Underdark prevents the rifts from opening or they don't open as often. So it's not as big of a deal. So what do you think? Which of those ideas do you like better? I'm not sure. I'll have to think about it some more to even know my opinion on it. But yeah, that was a great question. All right. So again, asking questions about people that live in the Underdark, do they plot against the surface world? Or is it an uneasy truce where they provide labor for underground farms in exchange for living inside the shield? Um, no, so there, there's no, um, within the, the, sh- the, the shield of Alondria does not go deep enough underground to be in the, the technical underdark yet. I, I think underdark, you're talking miles beneath the surface before you're actually getting into the underdark. So the underdark is not within the shield of Alondria and there are at least no known connections to the Underdark within the Shield of Alondria, because that would be a huge security breach that you would want to seal right away. As far as what, you know, people in the Underdark are doing, I mean, it's going to vary. You know, you've got lots of different species that live in the Underdark. You've got types of dwarves and elves and gnomes. Well, I don't really have gnomes in Primordia. So there won't be gnomes, but there will be dwarves and elves that live in the Underdark as well as mind flayers and beholders and and all kinds of stuff. So all of them, of course, are going to be different. And even, say, different dark elf cities could be very different as far as how they approach the surface world or not. One idea that I did have way back in high school when I was running in second edition, when I was running in kind of my version of the realms, was I was planning to do this big event where there was this massive attack from the dark elves on Evermeet, which was at that point kind of where all the elves were holed up. And I was going to have um, the Dark Elves come up in force and attack Evermeet, maybe at the same time attack other elven cities and settlements that still existed on the mainland. And it was going to be this this big, huge war. At the time where I was at in the timeline of the Forgotten Realms back in the second edition days, I think there had been a small assault on ever meet from the underdark and and it was just you know a handful of drow and they did some damage but that was about it but that you know that was that was it there wasn't much to it um and i think that since then there they did something with that because i remember i think it was in the third or fourth edition days reading somewhere about how the under the the drow had come up and attacked ever meet in force and all this stuff and i was like oh my god those bastards stole my idea 
Uh, but then I, I did a little research into how that went down and it wasn't nearly as cool as what I had planned. It was much smaller scale. It was much smaller in scope and turned out very differently than, than what I was envisioning. Um, but I never, I never did it. Uh, I stopped running in Forgotten Realms before I ever got a campaign to the point that I wanted to spring that event. So that's something that I've always kind of had in my back pocket and want to use someday. So I could definitely see in Primordia doing a story where there are dark elves and in the Underdark and one or more cities maybe band together and launch a major attack on the surface world. The difference I think in Primordia would be that they probably wouldn't be attacking the elves if only because then it, it probably wouldn't even involve the player characters unless I had a group of players uh, that had elves in the party and maybe were really allied with the elves and had been to one of their cities or something like that. So if I were running a campaign where the elves were more in focus, then I could have uh, the dark elves attacking the elves. But otherwise, I'd probably have them just attack Alondria or something like that. I think that would be a lot of fun. So uh, end of Nathan's email here, he says, maybe even what kind of horrors and forgotten things crept into Primordia from other worlds and now just sleep waiting for their time to awaken or an unfortunate adventuring party to stumble across them. So in essence, is there a Primordia Underdark? So yes, there is. Haven't done a lot of thinking on what exactly it's like, but I think it will be in a lot of ways very similar to the Underdark of the Forgotten Realms, at least from the second edition days um, before, you know, wizards got their hands on things and started screwing everything up. So, yeah, you know, but I think I think a safe assumption is all the usual stuff is going to be there. You're going to have mind flayers and beholders and dwarves and dark elves and, and all that stuff in the Underdark. Um, only no gnomes because I don't have gnomes in Primordia or if there's any kind of Underdark halfling, that's not going to be a thing. And yeah, you know, the Underdark would definitely be a good place to hide for things that had come through portals that that are not native to Primordia, whether those are horrible aberrations from the far realms or demons or types of fae that, that have come from the land of fairy or whatever. So yeah, that's definitely a place where things could be hiding out. Definitely a place where ancient dragons and behemoths and, and things like Terrascu and stuff like that would be probably holed up in the Underdark. So I've kind of only seen the Underdark is, is high level campaign material or at the least mid-level you know so it's kind of a an option other than going to the planes for high level play of something you want to do it's like well we can go in the underdark where everything's harder i never really understood having first level characters in the underdark <laughs> this is matthew colville and you're listening to game master's journey i want to give a quick shout out to the patrons of starwalker studios the support of the patrons makes this show possible. If you enjoy Game Master's Journey and you'd like to give a little back, becoming a patron is a great way to do so. Patrons get some cool perks like game material I make for Primordia and access to a special monthly podcast I produce just for the patrons. I'd also like to give a huge shout out and thank you to my tier four patron, Mr. Steve Strickland. Let's hear it for Steve. You the man. 
Thank you so much, Steve. And thank you to all the patrons. You can find out more about becoming a patron by clicking on the Patreon button at the top of the show notes at starwalkerstudios.com. All right, now we've got a question from Simon Collins. And if I can scroll here, Simon says, how are Fae and Primordia organized, if at all, courts or conclaves or independent or how? Uh, So, you know, this isn't something I've given a lot of thought to either, but right now I'm assuming that I'm going to do the traditional Seely and Unseely courts of the Fae. And, you know, I'm doing away with alignment and primordia anyway, which I discussed in the last episode. So, you know, I'm not going to have to worry about that. And and I'll be using a more kind of traditional seely versus unseely. You know, it's not good versus evil. It's more um, their outlook and, and things like that. And when it comes to the fey in primordia, I've got a lot of design space there because we've got something like eight or nine fey creatures in the monster manual for D&D. There are quite a few fey creatures in the Tome of Beasts, but they're very kind of hit or miss for me. Some of them are really cool, especially some of the fey lords are are pretty cool. Um, But some of them are just kind of, I don't know, like I feel like I could have come up with something as good, if not better myself, you know, like, oh, let's do an ice fairy. I don't know. I I don't know if that's an actual thing in the Tome of Beasts or not, but they have a lot of fae fae that's just like, oh, this is an ice fairy or this is a river fairy or whatever. And it's pretty obvious stuff. Like, I think any of us could come up with an ice fae, you know, and give them some ice powers or whatever. So I don't know. If I'm going to do something like that, I'd be more inclined just to come up with my own thing. If, you know, the published thing isn't going to blow me away with creativity or something like that. So Fae are going to be a big part of Primordia. And, you know, when I get to where I'm just like creating monsters and stuff, I'm, I'm going to be coming up with, with a lot of Fae. I do like the Fae lords and ladies, or at least the idea of them, that they're super powerful, um, high CR, you know, creatures or beings or whatever you want to call them. Um, but I think for, for my land of fairy, I'm not using Fae wild just because I think it's a dumb term. I'm going to call it fairy. I'm going to pull very strongly from Changeling to Dreaming because that was what is one of my favorite games of all time. Probably after D&D would be Changeling to Dreaming. And so we'll be pulling on their ideas of the Seelie and the Unseelie, which, you know, that came from a lot of uh, various mythologies and having kind of like the more commoner fairies and then the noble fairies and the noble fairies will be like crazy powerful and my fairies will be very alien because i i see them as a very alien very alien beings like they they don't think like humans do and they don't follow our ideas of morality or you know good and evil crap like that like it doesn't apply to them they're so different so i'm gonna have a lot of fun with the fae I ultimately will probably have some kind of fey race other than elves and dwarves. Actually, dwarves and primordia are descended from the fey as well. But yeah, that's that's all stuff in the future. But the fey, I mean, I could just take months and just work on nothing but the fey. 
because I want them to be a big deal in the world. And, you know, my idea is the Fae are like the nature spirits of Primordia. So just about anywhere you go in the wilds, there are going to be Fae and probably a lot of them in lots of different types. And um, they're not going to be good. They're not going to be evil. They're going to be alien. So interacting with them peaceably will be challenging, but not impossible. DM Nell tossed in a question. He says, are you using the D&D demon lords, archdukes of the nine hells and other D&D NPCs or coming up with your own? So that's a good question. I'm not sure exactly what DM Nell means here precisely. If DM Nell is asking if I'm going to use demon lords and the dukes of the nine hells and things like that as concepts, then yes, absolutely. They're, they're, will be demon lords, there will be arch devils and dukes and, and all that stuff. I still haven't completely decided what I'm going to do with the outer planes in Primordia. There, there are going to be outer planes. I'm going to have the classics like Gehenna and the Abyss and the Nine Hells and, and things like that. Probably going to do away with the whole idea of planes having an alignment because I'm not using alignment and see where that takes me. So yeah, and and actually, and I talked about this a little bit on episode one twenty seven. There's there's the possibility of demon lords actually being in Primordia, because if a rift opened to the abyss, and a demon lord could have theoretically come through that and be on Primordia. So you may not have to go to the abyss to go find a demon lord. Um, same thing with archdevils. So. If DM now is asking if I'm going to use the specific NPCs, like for instance, I think Out of the Abyss has some demon lords like statted out for you. Maybe. <laughs> uh, it just depends. You know, it, it depends on the particular adventure I'm doing and what I need from that NPC. If I can find a pre-published NPC that's going to work perfectly for what I want to do, then then yeah, why why spend time Re rebuilding the wheel, right? So um, if, if there's a demon lord from out of the abyss that I really like and, and I want to use it, then yeah, I definitely will. On the other hand, if nothing really fits, I'm not afraid to come up with my own either. In fact, I've already worked up one demon lord uh, who is an orc demon lord uh, who, who I don't remember... I, I think I was going to do an episode on him and I never did. I don't remember now exactly how he became a demon lord off the top of my head. But the basic idea was that, that he was originally an orc who ultimately eventually became a demon and then became a demon lord. And he uh, is active in Primordia. I haven't decided if he travels to Primordia from the abyss or if he is actually living in Primordia but he goes and finds orcs and turns them into demons uh, is how he fills out the ranks of, of his troops for his demon army. So I have uh, this demon lord that I've statted out, and I also have these kind of orc demons that I've statted out as well. I think it's more likely that I would look at the demon lords and out of the abyss as far as a guide for power level and maybe some inspiration as far as what kind of abilities they might have and things like that. But when it came to the actual demon Lord that the PCs encounter, I would probably come up with my own. Or if, if I wanted to use a demon Lord from out of the abyss, I, I would definitely go look at earlier editions, specifically first or second edition 
anything about them from those editions because I just think they were better as far as those kinds of things than, than a lot of the, the things we have in fifth edition. All right, G. Ferg also threw a question into the hat here. G. Ferg says, can folks from other settings pour into Primordia? Like say someone from Dark Sun or your favorite Forgotten Realms. And this one I can answer for sure. I have thought about this. And the answer is absolutely yes. In fact, that's that's one of the things I love about Primordia is because there are these rifts opening all the time, I can put anything into Primordia that I want to. And, and I don't have to work very hard to come up with an explanation for how or why it's there because I can just say it came through a rift. It got sucked in through a rift. So this includes l- using monsters from other settings. So for instance, you know, I keep bringing up Tome, Tome of Beasts. When I did the Tome of Beasts review, I, I said that one of the downsides, at least for me with that book, is some of these monsters are tied to the, the Kobold Press setting. I, I can't remember what it's called right now, but um, see what happens when I don't pre-write the show. <laughs> But so many of the monsters in Toma Beasts are from that setting and are very kind of steeped in that setting, which has a very different cosmology and religion and everything else than your normal D&D setting. So they don't work super well in the Forgotten Realms or something like that. But the nice thing is, in Primordia, if I wanted to use a monster from the Toma Beasts, even if it was a very, is it Midgard? Is that the name of their set? I can't remember. But even if it is something that's very steeped in their setting, wouldn't really make sense in Primordia. I could still use it for an encounter or something if I wanted to. And the fact that it doesn't really fit the world would actually work because it's it's alien. It's It's not supposed to fit the world. Now, one of my original ideas that I had about this world when I first came up with this idea of it being this planar nexus and things constantly being sucked in through these rifts and stuff is I had the idea that the magic of Primordia is so powerful. It's it's like a radiation, kind of like the Underdark radiation, that it seeps into you. And creatures or beings that come from another plane or another world in the Primordia, as they are in Primordia longer, this this magical energy or the radiation seeps into them and it changes them. And the original idea was that maybe it gives them some new abilities or some new resistances or, or kind of changes things up a little bit. But it also eventually gets to a point where that creature is now of Primordia and has been so suffused with this magical energy that that's of Primordia that going back to its home plane or its home world is no longer an option for it. So I haven't worked out the details of that. And part of that was also going to be that this radiation would seep into player characters. And as player characters use more magic, uh, things would happen to them, basically almost like mutations where uh, they, they wouldn't never necessarily be harmful to the character, but might lead to... Uh, cosmetic differences like maybe your eyes changed to a a strange color maybe your eyes were brown and now they're violet and maybe when you use magic they kind of glow or something like that or maybe all your hair falls out or you get these mystical tattoos on your skin that glow when you use magic or you're around magic or something like that so there might be kind of cosmetic things like that that could be seen as a downside if you don't want like normal people to know that you're touched by magic. But the other idea was that 
player characters would get abilities from this that that they'd get basically additional special abilities or magical abilities from their connection to the magic. So that's still something I want to do. I, I've kicked around some ideas, but I haven't come up with a system that I like for all that yet. But to to get back to G Ferg's question, yes, absolutely, you could planar travel to Primordia from any other D and D world. And I've considered doing this in campaigns before. You know, right now, for instance, I'm going to start running Storm King's Thunder, and the players wanted to do something in Primordia, but I just don't have the time right now to do all that. So I said, hey, you know, we can wait however many weeks it is until I can do this. Or in the meantime, we could do something published. And so we're doing Storm to King's Thunder. But if the time comes that I have time to, to homebrew a campaign, and if the players are like, yeah, we'd much rather play in Primordia, but we kind of like our characters, then I could just have their characters get transported into Primordia. And I would totally do that. Had the same thought when I was running Curse of Strahd, uh, which unfortunately we didn't finish, but I thought, well, when the campaign's over and the player characters leave Ravenloft, presumably to go back to the Forgotten Realms, I could instead have them end up in Primordia if I wanted to instead run there instead of the realms. And that's another cool thing about the way that I've kind of defined Primordia is that it's this planar nexus that kind of draws things in. So anything that's traveling across planes or teleporting or something like that, Primordia almost like it has this strong gravity that attracts things like that. So anytime something goes wrong or haywire and you're going to end up someplace random, chances are better that you're going to end up in Primordia than anywhere else. So it, it's kind of built in this explanation for me as a DM as to, well, why your your characters when they left Ravenloft ended up in Primordia instead of the Forgotten Realms, for instance. Also, you could teleport from Primordia or planar travel from Primordia to any other uh, D&D world. So, you know, we have this idea of the multiverse in D&D and that all of these D&D worlds, whether they're official published worlds like the Forgotten Realms or Dragonlance or Dark Sun, or whether it's some DM's homebrew world, there is this idea that they're all in the same multiverse and that you can travel to the, from one to the other when you go to the abyss from Kryn, you're going to the same abyss that you go to when you go to the abyss from Faerun, for instance. So I haven't decided if I'm going to say that Primordia is part of that or if, if my thing is totally different. That will probably be decided by what I decide to do with the Outer Planes. Because if I do too much with the Outer Planes and change them too much from what's in the DMG then it becomes hard to say that this is the same abyss that people on Kryn are going to or people on Forgotten Realms. So maybe this is just a different plane. And I think what I, would, what I might do in that situation, if, if I really was changing things up with the planes a lot, is I might just create my own planes. And instead of saying, this is the abyss, but I've made all these changes, why not just make it a totally different plane of my own creation and not say it's the abyss at all. So if I went that route, then it could all be part of the same multiverse, but that's, that's a bridge I'll cross when I come to it and probably won't ever have to even worry about that too much until I have player characters that are 17th level or higher or something. So yes, you can easily bring characters from any other world you want into Primordia 
But I do have this idea that Primordia is kind of separated from other worlds, at least insofar as no other deities have any power in Primordia. So there is that. So in that way, it's kind of isolated. But I don't think that that means that you can't travel there from somewhere else. And, and you know, that's one of the core concepts of Primordia is that it gets a lot of travelers from other worlds. So, you know, if I was running a campaign in Primordia, you know, I might throw in an NPC from Athos or from Kryn or from Faerun just because, you know, all the player characters are going to know is this person comes from some far away strange place. But the players will know, oh, this guy was a, a Knight of Salamnia in Kryn. That's kind of cool, you know, so I could do things like that. And I probably would just for shits and giggles. My favorite part of the show is when I hear from listener GMs like you. If you have feedback for the show, whether it's a comment on today's topic or an idea for a future topic, I'd love to hear from you. There are a lot of great ways to get a hold of me. You can email me at gamemastersjourney at gmail.com, follow me on Twitter at Lex Starwalker, Google Plus plus Lex Starwalker, and finally, you can visit the website starwalkerstudios.com to get links to my Patreon page, YouTube channel, and more. Finally, you can find a link to the Game Master's Journey Google Plus community at starwalkerstudios.com, and the community is a great place to bounce ideas back and forth with other listener GMs. You can also comment on the show episodes, share your own homebrew world, and ask questions of the many experienced GMs that are part of our community. You can find all this and more at starwalkerstudios.com. Andrew McLaren also submitted some questions and he wants to talk about the retreat. He says, we know people fled to the mythal cities, but I'm vague on what they fled from. Monsters now roam the unmythled areas. What kind of monsters? Are these the same ones who attacked during the retreat? Was it a single force of evil with a leader or just a phenomenon like mutation or zombie infection? Or did a hundred random portals open to a wide variety of hostile planes and nasty beings came through? Yeah, that's basically what happened. And I did cover this in quite a bit of detail last episode in episode 127, so I'm not going to rehash all of that. But yeah, in a nutshell, the these rifts that opened to other planes, just the amount of rifts that were opening and the frequency with which they were opening increased dramatically. Also, rifts that open can either be unstable, which means they just stay open for a short time, maybe just a few rounds, and then they close on their own. Or rifts can be stable, which means that they either stay open for a long time or they stay open indefinitely until something closes them. And during the retreat, not only were there more rifts opening more often, but more of them were stable and were staying open than, quote, normal. So that's basically what the retreat was. And as far as, you know, what was coming through those rifts, like basically anything and everything you can imagine, you know, some of these rifts were opening onto elemental planes. So you had various elemental type creatures coming in, including like genies and Afridi and things like that. Uh, some of these rifts were opening to outer planes, so you could have things coming from the Abyss or Gehenna or the Nine Hells or Carceri or, or wherever. Um, some portals or, I'm sorry, some rifts opened to the Far Realms, so you'd have like Cthulhu-type shit coming through those. 
Some would open to the land of fairy. So you would have fairies pouring in, which there's already a lot of fae in Primordia. I've even kicked around the idea of saying that fairy, or if you must call it the Feywild, I've kicked around the idea of saying that fairy isn't actually a separate plane in Primordia, that, that fairy and the material plane are still coterminous or whatever the term is. They're still the same plane. They haven't been separated. So I, I don't know for sure if I'll do that or not. But right now I'm, I'm going with the default that there is a plane of fairy. So you could have portals opening to plane of fairy, all kinds of things coming through those. Portals opening to the shadow plane, all kinds of stuff coming through those. The inner planes, I don't know if these are still a thing in 5th in edition, but the positive and negative energy planes could have portals to the, the, those. So basically, close your eyes, open a monster manual to a random page and point a finger, and that thing could have come through a portal. Plus, you could have portals to other prime material planes. So you could add portals to the Forgotten Realms or portals to Kryn or portals to Dark Sun and things coming through those. So, you know, the, the basic idea is that's what was going on is, is you had all this stuff coming through and also things like bigger things. Like, for instance, you know, a rift opens to the abyss. You know, you don't just have mains and um, closets and crap coming out, but you've got baylors and even demon lords coming through these rifts and staying here. So stuff like that. Really anything you can think of. And a lot of that stuff is still out there. So basically kind of what ended this calamity, well, th well there's a couple things. First, the gods did something that corrected whatever was going on that was leading to so many more portals opening. Nobody really knows what they did. Most people believe that they did something. And so now, or I keep saying portals, I'm sorry, I mean rifts. And so now, you know, rifts still open to other planes, but not to the crazy extent that they were during the time of the retreat. It's more, you know, the normal rate now. So that was one thing that happened. And then the other thing that happened was that the guild hunted down a lot of the really nasty stuff that came out and dealt with it. But of course, they couldn't deal with everything, especially, I mean, remember, Primordia is huge. So you had rifts and stuff opening on, you know, far away on the world that, you know, we're far from any city where the guild has a presence and that stuff was largely unchecked. So the DM only knows what's all out there, but anything that you can imagine could be out there and probably is out there somewhere. All right. We got another question from G Ferg. G Ferg says, we know cities survived the retreat or at least some cities, but have any other select locations survived? Like perhaps some hidden or secret locations or maybe some fancy wizard's tower or other places of power. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So the whole thing that protected cities like Alandria during the retreat was the fact that they had magical protection that prevented these rifts from opening in those areas. And this magical protection is millennia old. These cities were originally elven cities thousands upon thousands of years ago, back in the elven heyday when the elves were the power to reckon with in Primordia. And these are cities that are left over from way back then. And these mythals, which they're not really mythals, I have to come up with my own term, but for lack of a better term, these mythals were created way back when. So this they were made with the old magic that I've talked about before on the show. So, you know, that's one magic that's out there that can protect an area from these rifts. You know, it's not a huge leap to assume 
the the elves long long ago weren't the only ones in the vast history of primordia that have figured out some way to protect it from because the, these rifts opening have been a part of primordia forever or at least for as long as anyone has been around to have uh, recorded history or anything like that like you know the the retreat was when they were happening much more often but they've always been a part of the world there've always been something that's happening in the world so you know even tens of thousands of years ago people had to deal with these rifts and and if there was a way to prevent them they they probably would have found them so you know all those things that that G Ferg mentioned could totally be possible there there could be you know, hidden locations that survived the retreat were protected in some way. It could be some powerful wizard's tower, or it could be a temple or some other place that's, that's built on a place of power or has some kind of powerful artifact or something that protected it. Or, you know, maybe in the Underdark, if I go with the idea that the Underdark radiation prevents rifts from opening then, you know, most of the places in the Underdark probably would have survived. So that could definitely be something that player characters out exploring in the wilds could come across. Maybe, you know, some ancient wizard in his tower that stood long before the retreat and is still there. Or maybe some small village that somehow was protected or some other ancient city that maybe wasn't a city of the elves. Maybe the dwarves at some point came up with something like a missile that protected their cities or, you know, possibilities are, are kind of endless. I mean, the, the assumption is, is that the majority of, of stuff was wiped out, but here and there, there are isolated places that survived and there could be places that maybe survived just through dumb luck. Maybe they were just lucky and no rifts open close enough to give them any problems. I mean, it's it's a really big planet, so that's possible, I suppose. Uh, Gferg has more questions. How about powerful entities? Have they carved out locations or some such, like dragons or certain giants or other powerful beings that can love or that can live outside a mythal? So yeah, those are great questions. And, and I would say the answer to all those would be yes. And, and I talked a little bit about this in episode 127 too, about, you know, in the concept of, of demon lords coming through. And, you know, maybe this demon lord comes through a rift from the abyss, brings his army of demons with him, and he carves out a place of power somewhere in Primordia. Also, during the retreat, there were very, very ancient dragons that had been asleep for centuries or millennia who woke up, you know, all this upheaval and all this stuff going on, woke them up from their hibernations, and they came out of, you know, their lairs and reclaimed their ancient territories. Giants, you know, every everything, you know, everything you flip through the monster manual. If you see something that's a big bad that, that could rule a territory, there's probably somewhere in Primordia where one of those things is <laughs> ruling a territory. And I think that's really interesting. And, and I like this idea of Anywhere you go in the world, even if you're in the middle of, quote, nowhere, there are beings who live there and there is a hierarchy. Just like in biology, you have the, what's it called? The food chain, you know, the, the ecology of an area, the web of life. So I like that idea of, of an ecology and of how, you know, any area has, you know, the natural predators and the prey and the apex predators and all that good stuff. 
And so the same thing's true in Primordia. It's just with monsters and magic instead of just biology. So the apex predator of a given area could be an ancient red dragon, or it could be a beholder, or it could be a demon lord, or it could be a family of giants or whatever. <laughs> and I think that's really interesting and really fun to play with. So, so if you have PCs that are traveling through the wild, you know, anywhere they're at, they, they're in someone's territory. And, you know, if they draw that, that being's attention, that being may be way beyond their power level. And now they're in his backyard and they got to play by his rules and maybe, you know, maybe he's just going to kill him outright and players learned a hard lesson, or maybe he's going to demand tribute and they have to give him money or magic items, or maybe he's going to have services he wants them to perform, which is probably the route I'd go is you basically have to do quests for this guy and ideally quests that you don't want to do, maybe even go against your morality or whatever. But it's like, well, I either do this thing or this guy eats me. What am I going to do? And those are the kind of fun dilemmas that can be really entertaining to give players at the table. So I think that's really interesting. I also think what's really interesting is the clashes between these territories. So say, you know, you've got this mountain valley that's ruled by this ancient red dragon. And on the other side of the mountain is another valley. And maybe that valley is ruled by another dragon. Or maybe it's ruled by a demon lord or something and one or both of those guys wants to extend their territory. And now, you know, you've got this basically war going on between these two powerful entities and all their minions. And that'd be a great thing for the PCs to find themselves in the middle of, I think. I think the thing that makes a tabletop RPG the most enjoyable for everyone at the table, whether you're the GM or a player, is immersion. The more immersed everybody at the table can be in the story and the drama that's unfolding, the more fun that everybody is going to have. And one great way to increase immersion in your games is to have great audio. Having the right audio in the background can really enhance the experience for you and your players. If you're looking for great tabletop audio for your RPG, check out BattleBards.com. They have everything from monster sounds and languages to spell effects to music. Original, beautiful music that you can have playing in the background while your player character seduces the love of his life or while your party fights giants or goblins. If you head to the show notes at starwalkerstudios.com slash gamemastersjourney for this episode, you can find my coupon codes that you can use on your first order at battlebards.com to get some free bonus tracks. So check it out and take your tabletop gaming experience to the next level with battlebards.com. All right, I have another question from GFERG. I'm just doing these in the order I got them, and GFERG had a lot of questions, which is fine. So GFERG says, are you going to tie your old magic to the rifts? Like, did one cause the other or some such and get something like a metaplot? That's interesting. Um, maybe? <laughs> um, I... I see the rifts as predating everything. So even before, you know, the first 
dragon came to the world and started using magic or whoever the first people that use magic were. It's probably the Fae, actually. Even before that, there were the rifts. So it's definitely, it's not going to be a thing of the old magic somehow created the rifts or, you know, they came about because of some magical experiment that went wrong or something like that. Or at least that's not the way I'm thinking right now. I'm thinking more, the rifts are just part of Primordia. They're just a natural part of the world. And why that is, is a question that I may or may not answer or that player characters may or may not figure out sometime in the future. But whether or not there's any kind of a connection, I think that at least in some ways there are. For instance, we know that the, for lack of a better term, mythos that protect cities like Alondria that were built by elves long, long, long ago use the old magic or at least... See, I'm not sure if elves used the old magic back then or not. <laughs> I, I haven't totally worked out exactly what the old magic was and when that was going on and who used it or not. So it could be that the elves practiced the old magic and, and somehow forgot how to use it which that's the problem with that is like elves live so long how how would they ever forget how to use the old magic and magic is so much a part of what an elf is another idea i had was tying the old magic to fairy and saying that that's why the elves no longer do the old magic because they're no longer truly fey you know if you look at at elves uh, in the player's handbook or, or in the monster manual, even though they're descended from the Fae, their subtype is, or their type is humanoid. It's not Fae. So they're not Fae anymore. They're like Fae bastards, kind of, which kind of makes it interesting that they're so uh, prejudiced against half-elves when elves, in a way, are kind of bastardized when you think about it from the Fae. But um, so that's one idea I've kicked around is maybe the old magic is tied to fairy. And the elves, when they were still fey nobles or she or whatever you want to call them, they used the old magic. But when they became elves by, you know, living in the material world, their magic got diluted to the point that they couldn't use the old fairy magic anymore. So that's one idea I've had for kind of the origin and what the old magic is. But then, you know, it's like, well, then are fairies still using old magic? which would be interesting. That would make my fairy nobles really scary if they're still using the old magic, which, you know, among other things would probably be able to overcome like anti-magic fields and dead magic zones. And like, it would be immune to things like that. So that'd be pretty scary. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know, but I think that there is a connection between the rifts and the old magic, if only because the old magic was able to create these mythos that are able to keep the rifts out. So, so you know what I mean? So there is a connection, if only because the old magic could manipulate space-time, for lack of a better term, in a way that the new magic can't. And that's how they're able to protect the cities from the rifts opening when you know there's no other really way to do so. The other possibility is that the portals that the guild are able to build now are also somehow connected to the old magic. And it could be something that maybe the elves of old made portals to and the guild found one and were able to kind of reverse engineer it. Or it could be something where the guild created the portals themselves 
using some kind of principles of the old magic that they've been able to kind of piece together, but don't completely understand. And the portals are like the one thing that they've managed to do with the old magic that actually worked. And if I went that route, I would probably say that they used the old magic to create the first keystone. And then that keystone was used to create all the future keystone. Like, like basically they made one item and then they used that to make all the, the portals um, which that could be interesting because it would make the portals connected in a way that could maybe somehow be exploited, which would be an interesting story to pursue. But yeah, beyond that, I'm I'm not I'm not sure, G Ferg. But I I will say for sure the old magic did not cause the rifts, but maybe tied to them in some way. Maybe maybe it's the other way around. Maybe the rifts cause the old magic, or maybe the old magic somehow uses the rifts or uses the underlying cause of the rifts, whatever that is to power itself or, or something, you know, and maybe if the rifts are just some weird space time phenomenon, maybe the old magic was totally based on manipulation of, of space time or something like that. I don't, I don't know. All right. We've got another question from DM now who says, do you have a custom cosmology in mind? Or do you plan to use the standard great wheel model? That's a great question too. Um, for now, my default assumption is that I'm using the great wheel model. I'm using, you know, the standard planes of existence that have been in D&D at least since first edition days, I think. So that's my assumption. <laughs> I always tend to assume that I'm not changing things and that I'm using things kind of the way they are in D&D unless I just come up or find something that's just way better. All right, we got another one from Gferg. I remember one of your mantras was magic, magic, magic. <laughs> so how far does the high magic go? Airships? <laughs> I'd say the sky's the limit with the old magic. I mean, the whole point of the old magic was that it can do things that can't be done within the rules of the game. It's totally in the realm of GM Fiat. So, I mean, when you've gone that far like why really put any limitations on it other than the DM's best judgment as far as just regular magic, like what player characters can use it. That's just, you know, the limitations in the game, you know, in the system, I'm not going to uh, rewrite spells, what they can do and stuff like that. All right. We've got a question from Rob Whitaker who says, I'm also curious about the fairy culture. Initially, I thought they would be one of the distinguishing features of primordia. So yeah, uh, hopefully, ultimately they will be. Um, that is that is a whole can of worms. That is an area of the world that needs massive development by me. I think in order to really be happy with the Fey and Primordia, I'm going to have to create a lot of Fey creatures and and characters, and that's just going to be a huge undertaking because it's going to involve a lot of research and time. Because you know the first place I'm going to go is real world uh, mythology and legends and stories and things like that, because that's where all this stuff comes from and get as many ideas as I can from actual real world fairy tales and then kind of run with those and see where those take me. So yeah, it, it's going to take a lot of time and, and I still want to have an actual fae race that players can play, but yeah, you know, that's something I really want to devote some time to and I don't know, maybe I just need to to make the commitment to put that on my to-do list to start doing research for that. 
Rob Whitaker also says, also still waiting to find out who brews the best beer in Alondria. Wow, in Alondria, I'm not sure. I think in the world, I'd have to say the dwarves. I'd have to say the dwarves are probably the best brewers in the world. But in the city of Alondria, I don't know. That's a good question. I have to give that some thought. All right. Well, I think I will pause there. We've gotten through quite a few of the questions, but not all. So again, I encourage you, if you have any questions about Primordia, and these have all been very specific to Primordia, which is great. Or if you have just questions about world building in general, uh, let me know. And I'll have this thread that I've been getting these questions from linked in the show notes at starwalkerstudios.com for episode 128. So you can go there and find the thread on the Game Master's Journey community and put your questions in there. I've got a few more that I didn't get through. So hopefully I'll, I'll get some more and we can do another episode like this, or at the very least I, I can do this uh, as one segment of the next world building episode I do. So thank you very much to everyone who submitted questions and also feel free to, to submit follow-up questions. You know, maybe I answered your question, but it led to another question, or maybe you don't feel like I answered your question very well. And maybe you want to pose it in a different way, you know, so I can get at, at what you're trying to get at. But uh, looking really forward to hearing from all of you and reading your questions. Well, this is going to wrap up episode 128 of Game Master's Journey. Thank you so much for tuning in today and coming along with me on my journey as a Game Master. And, you know, it's funny. I've, I have I say at the beginning of the show, I've been running RPGs for over 25 years. And it's only recently that I've started seriously building my own world for D&D, which I started with D&D. So I've been running D&D for over 25 years. And, you know, when I was in, when I first started, I ran in, forget, or not Forgotten Realms, I ran in Dragonlance and Kryn for like maybe, I don't know, the first year I DM'd. Might not have even been that long. And then I moved to Forgotten Realms and I kind of did my own version of the realms for years. In fact, all the way through third edition and uh, even beginning in, in fifth edition, and it was only uh, about a year ago now, less than a year ago, actually. The beginning of this year of 2016, I believe, was when, <laughs> maybe it was a year before that. The years kind of start flying by. Um, but it wasn't that long ago that I decided, hey, I'm going to build my own world. And the main reason that I took the plunge was because of the Dungeon Master's Guide for 5th Edition, which I'm a big fan of. And their world building chapters at the very beginning of the book. And they do a great job of kind of getting you started with thinking about kind of these big picture defining characteristics of your world and kind of nailing down in what ways is your world similar to, you know, a common D&D world and in what ways is it different? And it got me started. It got me motivated to, to make my own world. And here I am still going, having a lot of fun doing it. And I don't know, I, I feel like I'm, I'm leveling up 
as a game master by by creating my own world. So I, I hope you enjoy listening to these episodes as much as I enjoy making them. And I hope that they're helpful to you. And once again, I'd like to encourage you to join the Game Master's Journey community. And if you're a world builder, if if you run D&D or some other game in a setting of, of your own creation, please share it with us. Tell us about your world. Tell us, you know, those interesting things that makes your world unique and share it with us. We, we have a number of listeners who've done so already, and it's always really fun to read about someone's world and you can ask for feedback, you know, Hey, what do you guys think about my world? You could ask for suggestions like, Oh, I don't know what to say is on the other side of this ocean. Any ideas or, or whatever. And people in the game master journey community are very good at sharing ideas and bouncing ideas around and things like that. And, and you've probably seen through these episodes of the podcast how much help it's been to me, the questions and suggestions and ideas that I get from listeners for Primordia. So, so you, can, you can get the same thing too on the Game Master's Journey community. So check it out. Well, I hope that you have a chance to play your favorite RPG this week. I'll be back soon with another episode of Game Master's Journey. Until then, game on. This has been a Starwalker Studios production, your source for quality gaming and hobby podcasts. This episode's music, courtesy of Cloudwalker, Transboy, Renfield, Stanko, and Ish. See the show notes for more details at starwalkerstudios.com slash Game Master's Journey. 